I've known Julia uh, for a couple of years now. It's not, not very long. But she, and those of you who know her, and I suspect most of you do, she's a vibrant, charismatic, very intelligent person. Um, whenever I'm in a company, I feel like, um, well, the metaphor I've used is it's like, um, it's like simultaneously being in a warm bath and drinking several pints of Red Bull. Um, <laughs> in the sense that I feel I experience this sense of total relaxation, the warm bath part, and feel very invigorated and energised, the Red Bull part. I think that you're going to experience something quite similar yourselves in a moment. So, my lord, there is one in the room somewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Julia Hobsbawm. Oh, well, thank you, Cliff. Everyone here at CAS for giving me such a warm welcome, particularly to Debbie Durston and Lola for all their work managing said guest list. So this is an exciting moment. I feel much is at stake, and I've agonised over how to express myself to get it just right. And that's just the outfit crisis, which has now passed. <laughs> Tonight, I think we're marking a moment in which a new management practice, not just a management theory, comes of age. And that's the practice in corporate life and in business of networking. First, I need to start with an apology to anyone who did book a place tonight expecting to receive top tips, how to hold a cocktail sausage in one hand, talking scintillatingly, a business card in another. Not tonight, darling. Unless you happen to have read the genuinely lively literature about social network analysis and social capital, you probably believe what the trader-turned-philosopher Nassim Taleb calls narrative fallacy, namely the fallacy that networking is a simple matter of getting sales leads and closing them, or indeed the notion that standing around in a room full of strangers actually is the most productive way to network, rather than frankly the least. Narrative fallacy aside, most of us do intuitively understand that networking works, even if we think it's only about working the room. It makes common sense that better connected people who are connected to a network do better. And clearly those who are unnetworked, unconnected, do worse. The completely unnetworked are, of course, often the unemployed. Yet amongst those who are employed, networking has not yet become embedded. In corporate culture, outside of leaders who network extensively, it's still regarded as nice to have rather than must have. What do we know about networks? We know a lot more than we did because most of us, all of us, are on a social network of one kind or another. In fact, we've got to that point in the world that Marshall McLuhan predicted in the 1960s of an era of single consciousness. So, with 5 billion of us on a mobile phone, that is 80% of the world's population, and all of us statistically connected by 6 degrees, you might ask, does she think we need a lecture about connection? It's not the fact of networks that I want to explain. It's what they mean in practice. 
The physicist and network theorist, Albert Laszlo Barabasi, if you only read one person, read him, notes that networks are everywhere. You just have to have an eye for them. And tonight, I want you to see the process of networking with fresh eyes. I've built a small network of five ideas to illustrate and to make the case for intelligent networking and why that matters. These draw on my own experience from the ground up in my networking business, as well as on some of what the best scholars have to say. So my first idea is called Weak Ties. Nothing to do with fashion, but a different take on what binds us together, and a look at well beyond the old school ties. Secondly, Loose Knowledge. You know it's about who you know, but it really is also about what you know. But as we suffocate with information overload, what knowledge matters most? Thirdly, the global green room. There are networking haves and there are networking have-nots. Elitism is not new anywhere. But I want to ask whether networking really can be meritocratic. Fourth, the marzipan manager. To illustrate the point about the global green room, I'm introducing you to the under-network squeezed middle in corporate life. They need rescuing from splendid isolation below the leadership icing. And finally, the curious corporation. You cannot run a business unless you are open to what is really happening outside it. The myopia of the markets in 2008 show the perils of not wanting to know reality. Imagine what could be achieved if a culture of constant learning is created in business. That's what I want to put to you. But first, some context. What exactly is a networker? The social network analysis term for someone like me is a hub or a node not glamorous terms. Even the complimentary phrase super connector makes me sound like a piece of copper wire. But what I do best is described in human, not technical terms, although where humans start and technology ends, in networks and networking is often hard to distinguish. The human term for what I do is matchmake. I'm a matchmaker. I connect people with people and people with ideas, and hopefully my connections make a chain of connection, and so on. In Hebrew, this is shidduch. And it's true, I do have some successful matchmakes under my belt. Two of them are in the room, and they're not osteopaths. <laughs> as Ka as uh, Cliff said, uh, Yiddish, not Hebrew, did make an appearance when CNN described my appointment as the professor of schmooze. Perhaps that headline writer at CNN had been influenced by the American political scientist Robert Putnam, who refers to schmoozers and the macher in his book about social capital, Bowling Alone. This, and Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, and indeed Barabasi's book Linked, all came out around the time of the millennium, when we were ushering in an era of a new obsession with understanding human connection and its opposite, disconnection. Gladwell also refers to hub-like, nodey, super-connector people like me in the tipping point, 
which I only realised when the writer Nick Hornby came up to me at a party and said, you know, Julia, there's a word for you. You're a maven. It took me a minute to realise that this was a compliment. At least, I think it was a compliment. Anyway, all this talk about schmoozers and machers and mavens remind us that direct, personal, uh, instinctive, but also orchestrated networking has been around for a long time, has been around for an ancient time. Or to put it another way, lest we forget, face-to-face connection is a lot older than Facebook. So we know what a networker does, but what about a network? If you try looking up networking, you get surprisingly little. It wasn't actually in the Dictionary of Sociology. The technical-sounding network analysis was. And next to this was neurosis, neurotic anxiety, and neutralization of deviance. Bit worrying. But the term network we do know and we can visualize. Pipes, roads, wires, railway lines, tube lines. We know that networks multiply, and we know that networks are fast. Speed is celebrated. Society doesn't just want more networks. It wants really, really fast ones. As if to illustrate this point, I was putting our seven-year-old to bed last week. He's just learnt to read, and he spontaneously said to me, Mum, and I quote, Are you going to take advantage of the special offer on Virgin Media's super-fast fibre-optic broadband, Mummy? Slow is apparently over. Speed matters, but so does scale. LinkedIn was founded 10 years ago this year and now has 100 million users, with two new members joining every second. Founder Reid Hoffman boasts in his book, The Startup of You, that LinkedIn If you are on LinkedIn, a person with 170 connections is actually at the centre of a professional network of more than 2 million. Note the term more than. How big should a network be? Well, obviously, if you're global and you need to demonstrate scale and reach, a large network matters hugely. Banks boast of their multinational network, but when the entire network fails, as RBS and Nat West found last week, it's disastrous. Big social networks mobilise, as we've seen in the Arab Spring. But by and large, politicians consistently fail to turn electorates into a network who feel connected to them. Barack Obama's great achievement was to do just this through social media, but let's see what happens second time around. Who has large, thriving networks? Scientists. The Hadron Collider was developed with a collaborative chain of over a thousand PhDs, each one at the centre of the author's own university hub. Supply chains. M&S has a quarter of a million in its UK supply chain, two million worldwide, 21 million customers a week served by an invisible network. Another group that has a large, thriving network, rock stars and celebrities. If you look at the screen closely, you will see that Lady Gaga really does have 26 million followers on Twitter. She interacts with them, and together they form, yes, a network. 
The comedian Jimmy Carr didn't apologise with a press conference. He apologised on Twitter for his tax arrangements. Big networks who can answer back most matter when you're in the wrong. And, as I've said before, social change movements. Avars.org, again, millions of signatures are connected uh, and collected by what they might call a hive in emergence theory, mobilised uh, by a mass network. Now, live music and team sports in particular are good examples of what I would call side-by-side -side networks. They have scale and intimacy and interaction. Twitter and Facebook have de facto become the new water cooler. Side by side on Twitter, you can give and get social commentary when something exciting, fun or momentous is happening. I have a soft spot for Twitter. My first technology was a telex. I know my staff are too young to even know what that is. Today, I'm approaching having made 10,000 tweets to something like 5,500 people on Twitter, and I follow another 2,500. From the horror of the Norway massacres, to the pathos of Amy Winehouse's death, to the political twists of the Leveson inquiry, and my favourite, the X Factor, they all display the large power of networks on Twitter. Today's Marshall McLuhan the writer Andrew Keane, whilst critical of Twitter's narcissism, is right to call the internet, which accesses it, the connective tissue of the 21st century. And although vast and limitless, Barabasi, again, is riveting on the statistical network limits, by the way, of the internet, it's worth remembering that its origins were created to provide a smallish network for a single small academic community. Which brings me to small networks, or face-to-face -face networks. Today's intelligence is kept forever. For years, it was gathered and stored vertically in silo-like servers in underground cement cellars in places like Presidio in San Francisco. Vast amounts, like 30 terabytes of what the writer Stephen Johnson calls collective intelligence. Now we've outgrown the land silo. We've gone upward, vertically again, into the cloud. But networks also have tremendous value when they're small and when they're lateral. Think of the coffee houses of the 17th century, the salons of the 18th and 19th century. Ideas flourished, so did trade. Conversation, side by side and face to face. Networks of thoughts, feelings, fact, opinion, all exchanged with intimacy and immediacy. I'm not saying large networks are bad, small networks are good, but I note that large vertical siloed networks do miss something which grassroots, lateral, face-to-face -face networks don't. Let's take the Rothschilds. Back in the 18th century, Maya Amschel Rothschild sent his five sons out of the Frankfurt ghetto and into the world. They refer today on the Rothschild's website to the courier network he first established in Frankfurt, London, Paris, Vienna, Naples. The courier currency wasn't money, it was knowledge. The Rothschilds compiled and stored valuable knowledge through trusted networks of people. 
The courier network they formed, like pearls on a necklace, one by one along the chain, I think you'll find, lasted and had power equaling any silo server in California. So in lateral terms, never mind the quantity, feel the width. The anthropologist Robin Dunbar talks of 150 as being the magic number of relationships we can feasibly have, and I'm inclined to believe him. The operative word here is relationships. How much more can be achieved when you don't just transact, you relate? Which brings me to the first of my five ideas. Weak ties. It's a small world, isn't it? So goes the six degrees of separation theory made popular by the John Guare play. In sociology, it was defined by the Milgram experiments in the 1950s and later reinforced as recently as 1998 by the Watts-Strogatz experiments, which showed that we are indeed becoming connected to everybody by as little as six degrees. But in looking at the practice of networking, you actually have to understand the science. Mindful of the way in chemistry that weak hydrogen bonds hold huge water molecules together, a young Harvard sociologist called Mark Granovetta made an astonishing discovery. His 1973 paper for the American Journal of Sociology called The Strength of Weak Ties is critical for understanding, I believe, the value of networking. Granovetta proved empirically that apparently random, weak connections between people prevail as much as the obviously strong kind, family, alumni networks, and so on. I look at my own networks, and I do see an abundance of weak ties. This room holds people that I've met across media, medicine, business, who I've become and stayed connected with, as well, of course, as my very welcome cheerleading EI team and family and my friends. Weak ties definitely help generate work. A Granovetta case study showed managerial workers who were 27.8% more likely to get work through a personal connection or word of mouth compared to 16.7% doing without. Good news then for headhunters. But is there a rub? Isn't there a risk that networking is a cover to cultivate people who might just be useful later on? Let's talk about the vulgarity problem connected with networking. Are we all six degrees away from texting LOL, like the Prime Minister and the newspaper executive? In truth, blurring boundaries between private and professional selves does happen, because who we are at work and who we are at home has crossover, and denying it is pointless. A couple of years ago, I sat watching our son play indoor football. I noticed the handbag and the jewellery of the woman next to me, and she noticed my FT. We started to talk. At first, we talked about our boys, specifically why little boys always miss their mark when aiming for the toilet. After a bit of bonding, I asked her about her job. I wanted to know who was this clever, sassy, warm, friendly, six-foot black American woman brightening up the tedium of Saturday soccer. She turns out to be the dazzling Vivian Hunt of McKinsey, and six months later, she did appear on an editorial intelligence panel. Randomness gave us weak ties. 
But here's the thing. I like Vivian Hunt and I admire her. I didn't cultivate her for work. There was a work connection, six degrees. There often is. We really need to stop being squeamish about the boundary where work and life meet. But obviously we need to know when not to cross the line. Bad and unprofessional behaviour, it's not networking's fault. It's the fault of a clumsy networker. That can happen. Overall, pay attention to the weak ties because the strong ones tend to take care of themselves. So to my next point, loose knowledge. The Economist noted last year, more powerful than blood or money is the power of ideas. But getting ideas is overwhelming. Data is flooding us. Our human computer brains struggle to filter what we need and what we don't. We're in what the geostrategist Parag Khanna calls a hybrid age of incomprehensible complexity. Those of us in economies where some kind of basic education is widely available are the envy of global competitors. Those same competitors are focusing on education to overtake us with smart workers. As the smartphones become ubiquitous, knowledge itself may overtake connection as the key to jobs and having a future. The academic Linda Grattan writes in her book The Shift about how having a fluid intellectual mastery will become a defining quality of a successful worker. Educational thinkers like Anthony Selden and Ken Robinson have long said that the exam-obsessed vertical system of stacking specialist knowledge in too tight a way to define how we learn and what we learn is a problem. What then if the theory that weak is strong in the case of personal connections can be applied in relation to knowledge being more valuable when it is loose rather than tight? The global workplace is itself becoming looser. Our graduate children are shadow boxing hidden counterparts and hidden competitors on other continents. The silicon roundabout worker in London must be mobile and fluid because they may end up in Silicon Valley or someone from Silicon Valley may pinch their job. The garment producer in Mumbai may come from Mombasa. That's because knowledge moves in a kind of diaspora now, uprooting from a fixed position and travelling. In fact, The Economist again noticed in an article on diaspora networks last year that there are 215 million first-generation migrants in the world. That's 3% of the world's population taking ideas and knowledge from over there back home. China's growth may have much to do with the fact that over 500,000 of its people have studied abroad and returned, mostly within a single decade, bringing a huge brain surge through the ranks of think tanks and government. The best expression of why loose knowledge matters that I can find is the sociologist Ronald S. Burt's term, structured holes. He describes the way in which ideas often form far better between formal network nodes than in them. As Bert puts it, and I quote, structural holes are the empty spaces in social structure. The value potential of structural holes is that they separate non-redundant sources of information, sources that are more additive than overlapping. And I'm minded to quote from Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, in which she describes freedom as coming from being in the blank white spaces on the edge of the print.
BBC programmes, channels like Sky Arts, the TED conferences, ideas, festivals like Hay, they're all examples of why people are hungry for loose knowledge. They're hungry for a loose ideas diaspora which goes with you anywhere in the world in a mobile age. The Global Green Room. On now to a green and pleasant land. Or rather, a cramped room. In TV studios and festivals, this is where the elite, the artists, the ones with the backstage passes get to go. You might also know this place as Davos, or the opening night of the Chelsea Flower Show, or the Glastonbury VIP area. In other words, a rarefied place where, to use a scientific term, people cluster. In this case, the people clustering are the leadership elites. Boy, do leaders know how to network. They do it all the time. Increasingly, the value of networking is being acknowledged by leaders as being an essential ingredient of leadership. The INSEAD academics, Herminia Ibarra and Mark Hunter, published a highly influential Harvard Business Review paper in 2007, officially declaring networking as a core function of leadership. The name Davos is shorthand for the epitome of global elite networking, not a tiny town on the top of a Swiss mountain. In fact, Davos is one of the World Economic Forum's many global events each year. I go each year to the Middle East to participate in their Global Agenda Council. A green room in the desert. It's hugely stimulating and enjoyable, but it is elite. The problem of how to open up these opportunities to more than a few hand-picked people is a real one. The most important issue is not the numbers. I'm all in favour of the small, intimate gatherings, of I've, as I've said. It's the names, not the numbers. If people who are already leaders of one kind or another only meet each other, what happens? Reinforcement. Not enough widening of the net, of the networks. One of the things I hope to do here with CAS is study leadership networks and how to blend them usefully and productively and integrate them with other kinds of networks. What could happen if weak ties and loose knowledge theory were applied to the global green room? You'll have to wait and see. Now, the marzipan manager. I especially want to bring someone into the room who remains stuck outside in an ivory tower of glass and steel. The term marzipan layer first appeared several years ago in the Financial Times, and I was astonished that this term was not, to quote Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, more sticky. So I've got it. I now call this group of manager who is stuck below the leadership icing, denied the kind of mobile network networking that those above enjoy, the marzipan manager. Now, this group really is stuck on email, in meetings, behind a wall of paperwork. No one is helping them navigate, curating what they need to know and who they need to know, devising systems which focus them on the most productive thing they could be, engaged, stimulated, interested. This group might not just begin to feel stuck, but cheated. They've worked hard to get their first and maybe their second degrees. They've certainly been given the third degree in umpteen job interviews before they even land their job. 
But now, several years later, they often face a peculiar isolation. They know a lot about their company, but not in relation to anyone else or anywhere else. The bigger the company, the larger the network, the more technically connected we are, we risk being more personally alone. Sherry Turkle, the American academic, put it so well in her book Alone Together. Our network life, she says, allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. So the marzipan manager is a creature of the time. They're encouraged to stay in their offices and indeed to some extent have begun to feel safer there. Despite the job title and the leadership training, their confidence often seeps away. In fact, they begin to regard networking as a challenge. They need to be taught how to do it. Or should I say retaught? Because networking is actually a second nature state of being. I would go so far as to say that sending your corporate executives kayaking down some rapids for some old-style bonding really isn't as productive as showing them how to reconnect to ideas and make weak ties between their personal interests and your corporate ones. Denying the marzipan manager the oxygen of outside connections and the power of ideas, and they do what anyone does in a silo or a bunker, they react as if to threat. They don't so much as burn out. They tune out. This is seriously bad news for the workers and for their employer. Productivity plummets with lack of motivation. An unproductive worker who feels lonely is generally not a happy bunny, and they often leave. Why would strong networks make them stay more or make them more productive? Well, that depends on whether you believe in weak ties and structured holes, as I do. And whether you think that leaders in their green room are hoarding the really valuable asset, knowledge networking, for themselves. So, to the curious corporation. We know that productivity is a problem in the UK. Britain consistently lags in league tables. The so-called well-being agenda distinctly makes the economic connection between well-being and productivity. So what's the real obstacle here? There really is only one obstacle to the knowledge network economy I advocate, which is insurmountable, and that's time itself. At this present moment, we just can't stretch it. No physicist in the world, hydrogen collider notwithstanding, can move particles as big as humans across time. Greenwich Mean Time sticks meanly to a 24-hour day. And even the most driven, exhausted, job-bound worker cannot work for more than 15 hours a day. We need sleep, you see. But we can rearrange and we can reprioritise what we do with our time and how we value it in the workplace. We can curate and guide people to navigate much wider swathes of the information landscape. We can find... Let's not forget that those at the top of the tree already know that far from being a waste of time, knowledge networking, intelligent networking, is hugely productive. The driver of change is curiosity. This word is curious in itself. It's suddenly very zeitgeist. I find myself tripping up over it everywhere. To be curious is to have a kind of freedom. The leadership guru Tom Peters first referred to it in 1994. 
More recently, the ideas polymath Seth Godin wrote that curious has nothing to do with income, nothing to do with education. It has to do with the desire to push whatever envelope is interesting. So here then is what I envisage for tomorrow's Curious Corporation, in which knowledge networking, driven by curiosity, full of weak ties and loose knowledge, where no manager is stuck, is a happy, productive place. Specialist technical knowledge is prized equally with looser, generalised knowledge. Continuous curiosity and learning internally takes place in association with academic institutions and knowledge partners externally. All levels of the workforce do short courses and build up in-house dossiers of ideas to share with each other. But they meet face-to-face -face more than they do online. The office party no longer becomes the only time the workers get to hang out with their bosses and no one even has to get in a kayak or wear a silly hat. And people do not email continuously. They regard technology as assisting, not replacing, eye contact. They are less reflexive, but they reflect more. In the Curious Corporation, managers in particular attend small curated gatherings just like their bosses. They don't get palmed off with huge impersonal conferences where the business card becomes a flimsy defence against overwhelm and awkwardness. Workers are given real time to develop the intangible relationships which yield long-term results. Recruitment begins to seek an inquiring attitude that can best be summed up by the late Douglas Adams in the long, dark tea time of the soul, where he said, I rarely ended up where I was intending to go, but often ended up somewhere I needed to be. Leaders in the Curious Corporation begin to build knowledge networking into a long-term investment strategy for their high potentials and their top talent teams, increasing retention rates undoubtedly and looking beyond the next annual report to see real return on investment. I'd like to finish by looking briefly beyond the corporate HQ and into wider society. Britain's old boy network, historically created a narrow elite, a global green room establishment from the same schools and the same networks, which are just no longer fit for purpose. We need social and intellectual plurality to get social and professional mobility. We need new kinds of ideas from the bottom up and in between if we're to become not just a nation of shopkeepers, but yes, a nation of networkers, driving science, art, culture, commerce through the world of the digital economy in this 21st connective century. So how about this? Let the coffee house tradition of the 17th and 18th centuries thrive with a return to the salon culture in today's coffee houses. Starbucks, Cafe Nero, Costa, you don't want rooms full of people tapping in isolation on their laptops or talking in self-reinforcing networks forever, do you? Why not create in-store salons in which curated conversation makes a comeback? Or where tomorrow's Jamie Oliver demonstrates his ideas and cooking live instead of more reality TV shows in living rooms? James Daunt at Waterstones, I'm throwing the gauntlet down to you. And to the banks and the mobile phone companies who celebrate the word network, 
Try checking how your own vast workforces are actually sharing knowledge and ideas with each other outside of the company intranet. You'll be shocked. And to the graduates and not yet employed, be curious, be connected, appreciate ideas for the ladder to success that they are. Use what's left of the free online information to hoover up micro-knowledge. Find out what interests you so you can become motivated, interesting, productive when you do land a job. And finally, how about all of us? Let's move from the passive state of being in or on a network to the far more active state of doing networking. Let's learn a new way of understanding our future, not alone together, but together, all together. Thank you.